This is Scott, host of the Unprocessed Knowledge Podcast and Black author. You could get all three of my books. My first book, Systematic Racism and Capitalism, Alliance of Oppression. My second book, Hypocrisy in America, The Veil of White Supremacy. And my third book, my first novel, Exodus 2035, all available on Amazon.com and Amazon Kindle. If you don't have a Kindle, you can download the Kindle app to your smartphone or tablet, and you can access those products. Thanks for listening. Um, don't forget you and you network. You can find that on Instagram, you and you underscore network, where you can find all the shows uh, under the you and you network. Shout out to the you and you network. You know what I'm saying? And all those podcasts that's on you and you network. Think for the you and you network. The head brothers at you and you network. You can check out the socials at you a n d u underscore network I remember when I remember I remember when I lost my another episode of the unprocessed knowledge podcast everybody should be following me on instagram at unprocessed underscore knowledge you can click the link tree in my bio to access this podcast and all three of my books no matter if you have a apple device or android device click the link tree in my bio you can find out how to access this podcast there if you would like to donate the, to the show, you can also do that through the link tree in my bio. Been away for a minute. I'm back. A lot to talk about. Just a reminder, you can all also dig through the archives and listen to some of the previous episodes. Been doing this podcast for a while now. Got, oh, close to 60 episodes in the archives. You can always go back, catch up learn something new catch up on some things that you missed previously it is good to be back in benton harbor michigan an area with a very high concentration of black people they are having an issue with their water their water is not safe to drink not to be confused with flint michigan which is on the western side of the state benton harbor flint michigan also has a very high concentration of black residents benton harbor michigan is on the eastern side of the state and their water supply has a very high amount of lead in it the water is not safe to drink now three years ago in flint michigan they actually switched their water supply source which caused all kinds of issues and benton harbor michigan that's not the case this is just due to infrastructure 
They did not switch their water supply. Their water supply has always been Lake Michigan. They have a infrastructure issue. The pipes need the pipe system needs to be replaced. I think over 6,000 pipes needs to be replaced and it has caused a high amount of lead in the water. Here's some more on that. Michigan, a predominantly black city in the southwestern corner of the state, have been advised to use only bottled water for things like cooking and bathing due to lead contamination. The warning comes just a few years after the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, was discovered. And as John Yang reports, Benton Harbor has been detecting elevated levels of lead in its water supply for years. Judy, today, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed an executive directive pledging all available state resources to address this issue as quickly as possible. The lieutenant governor, Garland Gilchrist, made the announcement in Benton Harbor. Every person in the state of Michigan deserves access to clean and safe drinking water, and every community deserves lead-free pipes. So we are committed to doing everything that we can to ensure that every parent in Benton Harbor can give their child a glass of water with confidence. Gilker said the state would replace all the city's lead pipes within 18 months, and until that's done, the state will deliver 20 truckloads of bottled water every week. According to state health data, high levels of lead were first detected in the uh, city's drinking water in 2018, and every year since, the level of lead has only gone up. The Reverend Edward Pickney is head of the Benton Harbor Community Water Council, a local environmental justice group. Reverend Pickney, thanks so much for joining us. You have been calling for this emergency directive uh, for a while now, and for for a while now, you have been on your own organizing water delivery, organizing filters uh, delivered to homes. How satisfied are you with what the state, uh, what the lieutenant governor said today? Well, you know, I'm I'm happy to hear that they have started to to move forward. Uh, I'm I'm happy to, to to make sure that that they're going to do what they said they're going to do. But one of the things that, to me, they fell a little short of one of the, one of the most important things is the language. The governor needs to say that the water is unsafe to drink, unsafe to brush your teeth, unsafe to cook with, unsafe to bathe with, unsafe to provide baby formula. She used the word uh, abundantly caution. That is not the language we need. I appreciate what she's saying. Don't get me wrong. I appreciate the, the bottle water and everything, but the language is important. We have to let the people know that it's unsafe to use this water. What do you hear from, from people in the community uh, when you move around? What are, are they anxious? Are they worried? Are they concerned? What are you hearing? Well, they're very concerned about, about the mayor not mentioning that the water was contaminated with lead. For three years, they concealed this information. They should have told the people that the water was contaminated, but they failed to do so. And that have led the community not to trust, not only the mayor, but also the governor. She said she's gonna do these things, but we wanna see some action, some real action. The governor pledged some money today. Is the state spending enough on this problem? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, we need at least 30, 35 to $40 million to complete this mission. Uh, 
I, I think that she should consider if she's going to finish in 18 months, she needs to find more money to complete this mission. Uh, the transformation of the pipes need to be done now, and she needs to figure out how she's going to pay for it. And, uh, and don't allow the citizens of Benton Harbor to have to pay for it. That's the way it should be done. This is not a new issue in Michigan. Uh, Flint uh, has had this, this issue. Both Flint and Benton Harbor, uh, the populations are majority black. Uh, both you have a high proportion of people living in poverty. Do you think that's a coincidence? No. What you just said is, is a fact. And let me say this. If there was a white person with a baby talking about lead in the water, they would call the Pentagon, they would call FEMA, they would call everybody out there, the Army, everything, to make sure they uh, get rid of all the lead in, in the water. But being a black community, they have different thoughts about that. Because why would it take three years for the governor to even answer, you see? And Bravo, Reverend Pinkney. Bravo. He said it exactly. If this had been a predominantly white community and it was white pe women with babies talking about the water is unsafe to drink, they would have called in the National Guard. They would have replaced the pipes. They would have called instituted a new water source. They would have did anything that needed to be done immediately. They would not have swept this under the rug and hid it for three years. That is simply amazing environmental racism is real this is not just happening because people want to just cover up the mismanagement of the infrastructure this is happening because these are predominantly black areas where nobody cares if the people consume water with high amounts of lead and and die who knows the type of health ramifications have been literally ingested over the last three years by the residents of this community who did not know the water was unsafe. Let's go down to Tennessee, where police officers are arresting children and taking them to prison on things that aren't even crimes. A new investigation by ProPublica and Nashville Public Radio has uncovered an alarming pattern of arresting and detaining elementary school children in one Tennessee county. Lisa Desjardins has the story. Rutherford County, Tennessee has detained a record number of children, some as young as seven years old in past years. Some were arrested for playground fights, others for cursing. In one 2016 case, four elementary school age girls were detained for failing to intervene in a fight. A disproportionate number of the children involved and arrested were black. Mariba Knight from National Public Radio is the lead writer on the report, and she joins us now. Thank you so much, Mariba. The focus is on this one county, Rutherford County, and an attorney there told you at, at one point some 500 kids he thought had been arrested by mistake and another 1,500 detained over a point of time uh, as part of a jailing system that seems like it was subjective. Uh, essentially, at, one, at points, police and judge were deciding on how the kid looked or how the kid was acting in a moment, whether they would be detained. At the center of your story is the arrest of 11 children surrounding that idea of a fight, who intervened, who didn't. Can you explain exactly what happened with those kids and, and how? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, essentially, you set it up really well. There were 
11 children in all that were arrested for watching a fight. Uh, the two that were actually involved in fighting were so young, five and six, that uh, they weren't culpable for their actions, but the other children were. And they were arrested under the charge of criminal responsibility, which as we outlined in the story, was not even a real charge. Um, it's a prosecutorial theory. So one can't be charged with criminal responsibility. One can be, say, charged with assault under criminal responsibility. But that's just the beginning of kind of the myriad mistakes that happened in this case. Uh, so yeah, they wound up arresting 11 kids in total using this charge. Uh, there were uh, a, an eight-year-old with pigtails arrested and handcuffed. Uh, a sixth grader fell to her knees. A fourth grader threw up in the assistant principal's office when she found out she was being arrested. It was just a terrible, terrible experience for these children and a terrible moment for this system. But it really shined a light on what was happening. Help us understand the role of those in power who seem to even create this system, an elected judge, and then also police officers. How did this happen? Yeah, so these arrests, as you outlined, took place in Rutherford County, which, as we write in the story, had been illegally arresting and jailing kids for years, all under the watch of one judge, juvenile court judge Donna Scott Davenport. She has been the county's only juvenile court judge since 2000 when the court began. And she has a really outsized role. She oversees the courts and she oversees the juvenile jail. And up until this incident, she directed police on what she called our process for arresting kids, which basically was every child who was arrested, even for something minor like this or like truancy, they must first go to the jail. The judge told law enforcement this explicitly in a memo. This is not normal routine procedure with children. Um, then the second part of this is that once they got to the jail, they were subjected to something called the filter system, which was implemented by the jailer, Lynn Duke. And that was an overly broad assessment of what a child was deemed, whether a child was deemed a true threat. I can talk more about that, but it was overly broad, it was illegal, and it was happening for decades. Okay, so let's break down what you just heard. In this one county down in Tennessee, which is about 30 miles outside of Nashville, this county has, for the last 21 years, has one judge that sits over the juvenile court system and the juvenile prison. And she has been conspiring with police officers to arrest children. I'm talking elementary school children. I'm talking children ages of 7, 8, 9, 10 years old. Not only has she, for the last 21 years, has she been arresting children, taking them to jails. They have been arrested for fake crimes. They make up charges. They patrol the elementary school. They make up charges. They arrest children to systematically destroy them. And this one judge for the last 21 years has been behind it all. As you heard in the clip, recently they arrested 11 children for just watching a fight between a five and a six year old. That's not a crime. They made up a charge called criminal intent. Criminal intent is a theory. There is no crime called criminal intent. Criminal intent basically means 
you thought about doing something. It's almost like conspiracy. You didn't commit a crime, but you thought about doing a crime. So this police officer patrols the elementary school, looks at kids and says, I think you thought about doing something wrong. So that's criminal intent. Come here, let me arrest you. Takes him down to the judge and the judge throws him in juvenile jail. Needless to say, these are all black kids that this judge is destroying. This is pure evil, man. This is pure. First of all, why do you have to make up charges to just to arrest black children at such a young age? Think about the psychological terrorism. Think about the ramifications that has on the ups. You heard in the clip, children were were panicking. They were getting sick. They were throwing up. They were like, I'm going to jail. For what? I didn't do anything. Think about how many young black lives this judge has destroyed. Arresting elementary school kids. When the judge was confronted and asked about these policies, uh, the judge basically doubled down and said, no, this is this is good for the kids because it builds character. This will this will help mold them. You know, there's a lot of discussion about this topic of what incarceration does. The judge in this case has argued on radio shows that this policy was meant to build character and that kids would come out of this detention system better. What did you find about how kids were affected? Oh, I had an interview with one child who simply said to me, we are not coming out better. Uh, it, it, this has affected children in so many ways. It, we opened the story with this mass arrest. The, the children involved in that, many of them had to go to counseling. They were lucky enough to get settlements from uh, the county where there was money earmarked for counseling. But I talked to them and they had bad dreams. They were scared they were gonna get picked up at school and arrested again at any moment. Um, there was another young man we spoke to who was kept for four days and denied his medication for bipolar. Uh, after he was released, uh, he was put on house arrest and he tried to commit suicide three times in the coming year. So the impact on this children is real, it is ever present and it is wide ranging. Is this still happening? And have there been any repercussions for the people who put this policy in place? There have been no repercussions except for the settlements. Uh, some of this has been stopped thanks to federal judges intervening. When lawyers have brought class action lawsuits, they have forced the filter system to stop. They have forced solitary confinement to stop. But the architects of this system are still in power. The judge is still the judge. The jailer is still the jailer. And there's also other mechanisms of oversight that are woefully inadequate that we outline in the story. Uh, just one example is the Tennessee Department of Children's Services so as you heard in the clip down in Tennessee, the judge is still the judge. The jailer is still the jailer. Business as usual. Let's go out to California. Let's talk about some good old fashioned land theft. OK, about about 100 years ago, Manhattan Beach, which is a suburb of Los Angeles, not too far from it. There was a black company, black company. There was a black family and they had a resort out there. They had a black owned beach resort specifically for black people. The city of Manhattan Beach, the residents, the white residents there, did not want this all-black resort in their town. So what they did was they passed a law under eminent domain and took these people's property. They took the land that they owned. They took their business. They said it belongs to the state now. They turned it into a public park. This was back, like I said, in early 1920s. 
the Bruce family, the black family that, that owned the property and the resort, they sued the state for a hundred thousand dollars back in 1920. The state gave them 14 grand and told them to go on about their business. Right now, that land that was seized is worth seventy five million dollars. I am not exaggerating. Now, something interesting happened last week. The city actually gave the family the land back. Now to a story about land theft and a family's fight to get it back. In 1924, the city of Manhattan Beach, California, seized a beachfront property. The land belonged to an African-American couple named Charles and Willa Bruce, the founders of a once flourishing seaside resort called Bruce's Beach Lodge. The white residents of Manhattan Beach wanted their black neighbors gone, and the city complied. Charles and Willa Bruce lost their resort and their fortune. It's an injustice that dates back nearly a century, and for years the land was owned by the county of Los Angeles, until last week. Today we're making history. And so I'm, I'm proud to be here, not just for the descendants of the Bruce family, but for all of those families torn asunder because of racism. California Governor Gavin Newsom spoke at a press conference at Bruce's Beach. He was holding the bill that would give the land back to the Bruce family. So with that, let's sign this bill and turn this property over. Today, Bruce's Beach consists of a lifeguard training center and a park with panoramic views of the Pacific. White residents feared an invasion by the African-American community in Manhattan Beach. They set up barricades to keep black beachgoers from getting to the ocean. And members of the Ku Klux Klan, active along the California coast, reportedly attacked the Bruce's resort. They slashed tires. They burned mattresses under the porch of the resort. They tried to blow up a gas meter of one of the residents here. You had 24-hour, 24-7 phone campaigns of threats against Willa and her family. Manhattan Beach City officials invoked eminent domain in 1924. They claimed to build a public park. And the resort, once a safe haven for black families, was shuttered and demolished. The Bruce's requested $120,000 for both damages and the value of the property. Instead, the city granted them $14,500. Today, the two parcels of land are worth an estimated $75 million. Bruce's Beach is one example of land theft that's taken place across the United States through violence, intimidation, and legal maneuvers. For generations, black landowners like the Bruce's have been victimized by eminent domain abuse and unjust property laws. Is there any way to calculate the total amount of money black property owners have lost in the United States over the course of generations? So what I'd say is we're talking in the trillions. This is Thomas Mitchell, a property law scholar from Texas A&M University. He's worked to reform the discriminatory policies that have stripped African-Americans of their land. I'm part of a research team called the Land Loss and Reparations Research Project. And what our research team is doing is trying to put an economic value on the agricultural land black farmers unjustly lost over the course of the last hundred years. And our research team has come up with a preliminary estimate of $300 billion in just lost economic value of the land itself. And 
we're also then going further and saying, well, as a result of losing this land, well, we lost the ability to benefit from the land ownership in terms of families getting loans to send their children to college and universities, which then has a negative impact on economic mobility. And that's just black farmers. There's a lot of African-Americans who've lost property in this country who are not black farmers. And so we're talking trillions. You heard it. We talking trillions of dollars worth of land and property that would that was literally just taken, taken from black people. Taken. Now, do you know how different generationally the Bruce family legacy line would have been if they were able to keep that property? Mind you, they took this property away from them over 100 years ago. That's $75 million worth of real estate that they took from you. Their entire family legacy could have been totally different. We heard of Hilton. We've heard of Marriott. We've heard of the W. Hell, it could have been a chain of beachfront property. It, it, it could have been the Bruce's. It could have been them. The Bruce family could have been just like Mr. Marriott and Mr. Hilton and whoever owns the W. They could have been just like them wealthy and successful and have a chain of, of, of beach resorts they could have done all kinds of th- who knows how they could have been able to, f- to flip that investment and grow their family wealth but it was taken from them look and this didn't happen in Alabama this didn't happen in Florida this didn't happen in Mississippi this happened in LA okay the global system of white supremacy it is not just in the rural south it, ha- it has happened all over the country. It's happening in California. It's happening in Michigan. You can't even drink the water. You can't send your kids to school in Tennessee. If you have a successful property out in L.A., maybe they'll pass a law and take it from you and turn it into a public park and give you 14 grand. Even though the land's worth 75 million, they'll give you 14 grand until you go get on get on about your business. I mean, it's terrorism. Don't tell me black people aren't owed. We are old. And these are just the stories we know about. Look, it, it didn't just happen in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It didn't just happen in Rosewood, Florida. It j- didn't just happen in Wilmington, North Carolina. It's happened in every state all over this country. There are black people with stories how they were terrorized, how they were ran off their property, how their land was taken from them how they were abused, how how they passed laws to undermine them. While we're on the West Coast, this happened in Stockton, California. I call him a walking miracle. 11 days after he was shot seven times and left for dead, Bobby Gale of Stockton has just been released from the hospital in what is now a hate crime investigation. ABC 10's Kurt Rivera has more. Emerging in a wheelchair from San Joaquin General Hospital in French Camp, 45-year-old Bobby Gale was all smiles, happy to be alive. Because I did thought I was going to die. I did. I thought it was going to be my last day until I started praying and then I got calm and peace. His life-changing ordeal happened nearly two weeks ago. Gale was finishing up a construction project on a Friday night at a restaurant in North Stockton. He was outside when a pickup drove by. And the guy sped fast like he's going to run me over. And I actually, I told him to slow down, and that was the wrong thing I could have said. 
And he just got right out the truck and started shooting me right away. I just threw my hands up to let him know, hey, I'm coming in peace. Like, I thought I could look in his eye um, to be like, hey, what are you doing? But I couldn't get that in him. It was like I seen Satan, and Satan was just coming towards me. Gail was rushed to the hospital with seven gunshot wounds, including two to his head. Days later, 31-year-old letter carrier Michael Hayes was arrested and charged with attempted murder, assault with a firearm, and a hate crime. He just got off the truck and said, die, die, and just started shooting. So that's when I know that he was, there was no bargaining with him. Despite it all, Gail is able to walk unassisted. He'll continue his recovery under the watchful eye of his brother Marlon. He remains upbeat and positive with a message. People. We covered this on a recent broadcast. The FBI has released a report saying hate crimes against black people specifically is up in the state of California. 30% don't know if this is a coordinated effort. If you are in California, better please be careful, especially if you black. This white man tried to assassinate this brother for no reason other than he was a black man. So let's just recap today's stories. Um, Water in a predominantly black town in Michigan. Um, high, high, high levels of lead. Let's just keep that quiet over the next three years or as long as we can. Um, doesn't matter if we lose a, an entire generation of people to lead poisoning. Um, police officers down in uh, Tennessee uh, patrolling the black elementary school to see how many kids um, they can incarcerate off. Fake charges. We got land theft systematically destroying the wealth of black families um, in California. Oh, and we got uh, a black man shot seven times, twice in the head as he was getting off work in Stockton, California for nothing other than just being black. This has been the latest episode of the Unprocessed Knowledge 